Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name is Marshall. What's going on, Marshall? Uh, feeling a little awkward, a little aco-taco right now. Yeah, it's... Feeling naked. Some technical complications on the recording side, but... We're going no headphones. We'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be good. Just don't have that warm sound where you're just immersed in your own voice, you know? Yeah. It's all good. Some people might say that we uh, enjoy the sound of our own voices too much. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe taking a break from that would be a healthy thing. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. All right. So what we've been doing in the past, Mm -hmm. for the past four weeks maybe, is kind of sitting in one century. Pretty much, yeah. 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 we, We made a comment. I was listening... I was listening back to the Christmas episode with my family because we were taking a long drive and they were bored. Okay. <laughs> and uh, talk about loving the sound of your own voice. I'm I kidding. know. <laughs> I know. Uh, so the well, here's the on, here's the honest thing behind it. They don't listen to the podcast, and they were like, "Hey, let's listen to Dad's podcast. Which what's one that we would enjoy?" And I was like, "I right, find that one, the Santa Claus one." Right. In that podcast, I made the statement that if ever you want to sound smart. And there's a question about church history or church theology. Mm-hmm. Just say, I believe it began in the fourth century. <laughs> and chances are you'll be right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. At least there will be some trail of an argument. Sure. Sure. That would uh that would sound right. And that's where we've been mm-hmm. because it's that significant. Yeah. But but whereas we have taken twelve weeks to cover 400 years. Mm-hmm. We're going to knock out 200 of them today. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so, I mean, and there's reasons for that, which we'll get into shortly. Let's do but, it right now. Okay, well, okay, so here we go. We've talked about the fall of the Roman Empire so many times. People are probably getting tired of us talking about it. But the the Roman, the Western Roman Empire finally, fully, totally falls yeah. In 476, when uh, Odoacer, who is a Germanic warlord, mm-hmm. deposes the last Roman emperor of the West and uh, and takes over, but doesn't call himself an emperor, just says, I'm king of Italy now. And and this is essentially the end, the, the, the true end, the ending of the end of the Western Roman Empire. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when Constantinople becomes the capital of Rome. Yeah. Right? Well, well yeah, yeah. Why isn't Rome the capital of Rome? Well, <laughs> because we don't own that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for a lot of people, what this fall of Rome marks is the beginning of something called the Dark Ages. Mm. Mm, the Dark Ages. So let's talk about synonyms. Okay. The medieval period, mm-hmm. the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. Essentially, yeah. 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 It's, it's, yeah. Now, some people have kind of subdivided it up in different ways sure. and whatnot. A lot, of, a lot of modern historians don't love the idea of even saying the phrase Dark Ages. 
It's like a new, like, one of these, like, modern revisionist history things where they're like, no, the Dark Ages were not dark at all. Yeah, so this happens for this happens for two reasons. And and I, I think for our, for all intents and purposes, here in this podcast, mm-hmm. the medieval period are the Dark Ages. Sure, yeah. And I'm comfortable saying that. Yeah. And I think there are a couple of reasons why people come against that. Mm. You talked about the revisionists. When we say dark ages, we don't mean that no one ever did anything positive or enlightening. Right. It's not a universal <laughs> application that says there was there was no progress or learning that took place by any one person at any point in time. Yeah. For this span. Yeah, it's not like it was like back to like prehistoric man levels overnight forever. That's not that's right. not what happened. And and even then you'd be like, well, what about fire? They, they <laughs> fire so there was some enlightenment. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's not what we're what we're talking about here. We're talking by and large as a society, mm-hmm. the halt and even regression of science and learning and art, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I think I think d- the word dark is an appropriate term in the sense that we're kind of in the dark to a large degree of what went on for a significant chunk of time. Mm-hmm. And and that is because there is a, a huge decline in record keeping and copying. Right. So whereas, you know, from kind of the time of the Roman Republic through the empire, through, you know, Constantine's era and up until now, there's a lot being written. We have a lot of details about the people who lived, what they did, what they thought that is going to kind of fall off a cliff and it's going to take a long time for us to get back to, to that same level. Yeah, Academia is a social privilege, mm, mm -hmm. right? You have to have people living at peace mm-hmm. and living in economies that are large enough that some people in your society can be sustained without being out there chopping the wood and plowing the field. Right, right. Right. So so it does come with a level of privilege. So there's societal privilege that is kind of lost. Everyone just sort of mm-hmm. gets back to an entirely blue collar yeah. kind of a way. Or monastic. Yeah. Right? A lot of that gets locked away. The The other thing that I want to say, though, quickly, to uh, why people say it's not the Dark Ages, is they argue that we're being narcissistic and profoundly Eurocentric. Mm. To which I will say, you know what? I don't figure you plan on doing much on April the 6th or April the 9th. Or July 22nd. You probably don't have those dates marked on your calendar. Right. Those are my kids' birthdays. (laughs) I'm going to celebrate them. (laughs) Because those are meaningful dates in my home. Mm -hmm. Right? They can mean nothing to you. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Or they they can mean less to you. So are we going to, in a history of the Christian church podcast, ignore... The advances in mathematics that the Arab world was making, mm. sure, because it doesn't affect what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. It's another person's history. Yeah, on the other side, mm-hmm. it's not church history, and our path goes through Europe. Mm-hmm. And so, for us to say that, 
One, it's not to say it's absolutely dark, I think is the better way to say it. Sure. It's not absolutely dark, and it's not universally dark. Yeah. But for the people that we are covering and the path that we are taking, Mm -hmm. it is a dark age. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... To kind of explain why, I mean, when the Roman Empire falls, Western Europe is kind of divided up into a bunch of different nations, smaller nations, quote-unquote barbarian nations. Greek and Latin start falling out of fashion, these unifying mm-hmm. languages. So apart from you know the, the small amount of educated elite who were typically monks, and we'll talk about talk about that too, um, people weren't able to communicate with each other as much as they once were. On top of that, the Roman road system, which had facilitated trade and travel um, throughout the empire for hundreds and hundreds of years, now those roads, no one's, no one's fixing those up, right? right? They're falling into disrepair. There's not these garrisons every so many miles making sure that travelers are safe. Like So all of a sudden, you have more localized economies people aren't trading goods from the other side of the the known world like you're having to just kind of make do with what's in your immediate vicinity and only really in in a significant amount of contact with people in your own vicinity and again it's not to say that there was no trade it's not to Mm -hmm. say there was no travel but it was significantly diminished yeah the local autonomy really changes the landscape Mm -hmm. when you don't have a broad umbrella covering People become mostly concerned about themselves. Mm -hmm. What's going on right here, right now? And let's take care of that. And that comes with a level of benefit, right? You do have the local autonomy and the decisions made there do matter to those people there. But they come with real consequence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you said, those connecting roads, which just further isolates those people, creates a little level of vulnerability mm-hmm. um, and the group effort of an empire is what allows for the wealth that causes for things like art mm-hmm. and humanities and those kinds of things mm-hmm. to thrive and yeah. and not in everyone pick up a shovel and, and get to it kind of an idea um, and so it's, it's interesting how the landscape changes and then sort of compounds itself into this isolation of small regional kingdoms. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can, I mean, you can see the decline in the, the architecture, right? Like archaeology alone, like you look at that, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a drop. There's a drop off to the point where, um, you know, reading up on, on some British history, which I mentioned before, is kind of, I'd love to nerd out on. There's poems in like, the 800s and 900s written by people living in England stumbling upon these Roman villas and palaces that were built there hundreds and hundreds of years before. And the only explanation they have for why they're there is giants must have built these because there's their, their, their equivalent level of, of understanding of how to build things was just so diminished mm-hmm. from what the Roman empire did. And I think, I think people might be surprised by that because when we think of medieval architecture we think of castles right and so so surely they have but you know what castles are often crude yeah and damp and cold mm-hmm. uh there there are the the cities have become so small 
and have fallen back so far that the even even things like public sewage yeah have to this point in history that we're talking about existed for 1200 years mm. running water mm-hmm. in a city you know more than a thousand years old mm-hmm. not in these medieval cities right completely gone mm-hmm. left existing things left to disrepair and nothing replacing it yeah and that's the kind of fallback socially in a, in a really concrete way that says no you have to recognize these as dark ages mm-hmm. right the, the the level of like you said even even the capacity the mental capacity to say w- we can build things like this but to look and be like that that must not even be humanly possible right when they were built you know five six hundred years prior mm-hmm. um that's the sort of slope that people have slidden down as a general statement mm-hmm. for European society at the time. Yeah, totally. And so one of the things that you mentioned before is how education is becoming increasingly inaccessible to the vast majority of people in society, even upper classes as time goes on. Yeah. And essentially it's it's learning is centralized in monastic communities. If you want to learn to read and write, you'd better become a monk or at least go find one to teach you. Because that is essentially, and, and more so on the fringes, but again, of the empire, but we're talking about these massive territories. Like, again, learning is centralized in these monasteries that kind of are, are spread out across Europe. Um, but, I mean, you have generations of, of kings who are Ill- totally illiterate. Mm-hmm. And completely rely on other people to do their reading and writing for them for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, it's a rarity, in fact, when when a king in Anglo-Saxon England or in Francia or wherever actually takes the time to bother to learn how to read. Right, and and I, I when people want to argue against this. They want to say things like, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all times, Thomas Aquinas, mm. comes from this period. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas did live in this period. Well, later on in this period. Late in this period, but like in this 1200s. period. 1200s. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a while before we get to him. Yeah, it'll be a long But while. we're talking about a period that lasted 900 to 1,000 years. Yeah. And you're going to pull out... And the fact that you can pull out one guy and go, what about Thomas Aquinas? That is not proof against, it's proof for. Right. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, but there was that one guy yeah. who, if you, the average age, mid-30s. Mm. So there's this one guy for 15 years in a millennium. Mm-hmm. Come on. <laughs> He's he's probably not entirely alone. Well, but but no, but I, as but far as as far as big names that I know still affect mean. the the yeah. conversation of theology. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. Yeah, there's there's a a dearth of of prominent thinkers and writers for a very long time. Yeah, for a very long time. Um, so speaking of these monastic communities um, that become more and more popular. Um, we got to talk about a guy named Benedict of Nursia. All right. Benedict was born uh, right after the end of the Western Roman Empire 
And as a young man, he was uh, sent to, you know, what was left of Rome uh, for an education, left his studies. You know, we've heard this story before, right? Goes and lives in seclusion for a few years, matures spiritually, ends up becoming an abbot at, uh, at one of these monasteries. Um, but, <laughs> but he's so rigid in his thinking, the monks there try to poison him multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> they, they try to poison the his his wine and his bread so they like i mean that's like yeah anyways so they they try to poison him multiple times so he ends up leaving and founds his own uh, monastic community he founds 12 of them and he writes a set of rules down that are known as the rule of saint benedict which essentially become the basic code of conduct for monasteries for the next thousand years. And there are right. still monasteries today that, that operate under Benedictine rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and they cover, you know, spiritual things, lifestyle things, administration. Um, and it's a very regimented lifestyle where every kind of hour of your day is, is accounted for and dedicated to various things, whether it's prayer or reading or work or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, so so Benedict, if you've ever heard of Benedictine monks, he's from this era. It's the early 500s when he's kind of sit, laying out the foundation for what would become the norm. Yeah, in in Lima, when we lived in Lima, we visited uh, a Benedictine monastery. Okay, cool. Which was massive and gorgeous. Uh, it's still in operation mm. to this day under the Benedictine order. And uh, all kinds of like crazy catacombs and just human bones oh, yeah. all through. It's yeah, yeah. it's bizarre. But the w- yeah, the weird thing that comes out of this monastic movement is that like these rules are established. Like, what does godly living look like? And the answer is different if you're a monk or not, which is just a strange a strange way to kind of to to separate things. Which I, as I was kind right. of reading into this, right? It's like well. If you want to glorify God with your life and you happen to live in the monastery as a monk, you have to do all of these things. But if you're not in that position, well, then you have a much greater degree of freedom and God's still happy with you, I guess. Let me I, ask you something, Pastor. Okay. Has it changed? For me? Or or just in general now? Oh, I'm, I'm just saying, does the congregation require mm. a level... Of uh, level of order from their pastors that they would happily excuse amongst themselves. Um, I honestly, and maybe this is just a credit to our particular tradition and our particular congregation. I think there might be a divide there, but I don't think it's nearly as significant. No, like not even remotely. Close. No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's nearly as significant. Yeah, I'm just saying they're. I, I do feel like even in modern evangelical circles, mm. there's this idea of, well, of course, there's grace in this for me or, or whatever, but mm. I don't want to hear that the pastor is doing that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's probably some carryover for that. I mean, um, I know I'm always really self-conscious about my <laughs> my my rambunctious and energetic two-and-a-half-year-old. 
and always <laughs> thinking like, wow, people must be like judging me, wondering like why this pastor can't get yeah, his I, kid under control. It does come down to our kids, <laughs> right? Like there's an expectation the pastors, not only the pastor and his wife, but his kids mm-hmm. need to be uh, model citizens mm-hmm. for the church as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a level of there's a level of right to that. Sure, being above I would, reproach. Sure, I would say the pastors need to be above reproach, and I would say that um, that if if you were in a situation where you would say, well, our pastor is a little bit behind the congregation in pursuit of righteousness, that's a problem. Yeah, sure. Uh, but as far as two different standards, I mm. think uh, is is probably something that carries over and shouldn't. Hmm. Hmm. Um, That's an interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Not to say we lighten it on the pastors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, still at this time, though, not all Christian thinkers were monks. There's still this kind of residual echo of Roman society. Um, one example of this is a guy named Boethius, who's uh, an aristocrat with Roman background, who ends up serving the barbarian kings after Rome falls. And a lot of these kind of these new kings, they want to adopt some of the Roman traditions and, and norms, although it's, you know, not not perfectly. Um, but he he you know, he's an he's an example of someone outside the monastery who wrote extensively. Uh, math, music, philosophy. Philosophy was big for him, and and he kind of carries on the tradition a little bit of 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 Augustine and others to say, you know, the pursuit of philosophical understanding will draw you closer to God because He is the source of truth. Um, so yeah, so there are still these people, but I mean, this is early on too. I mean, this guy is kind of the first generation after the fall of Rome. Yeah. And kind of, kind of hanging on to a little bit of that, that lifestyle and or order and and background, um, but it is going to kind of fizzle out uh, more and more over time. Yeah, it's interesting. You would think that a guy like that in a culture where there, this is a wrong word, but where there's not a lot of competition, mm. that you would have people just sort of popping up here and there, mm. right? Uh, to say, well, this person is doing that kind of deep thought-provoking work. And so when no one else is and they stand up, it's more visible. Mm, yeah, I think it can only be that not only do you need a teacher, you need the students, hmm. right? Yeah. Like you were saying, even amongst the aristocracy, education falls, mm-hmm. right? It's not just that those aristocrats were not interested in education. Mm. You got to have people teaching. Right. You got to have other people around that are educated to the point mm-hmm. of leading them and, and making that something that matters. Yeah. And and it helps too as as you're trying to develop your thinking and sharpen yourself intellectually to have dialogue with people living right. in other contexts right and and be have these discussions and work through these things like we've seen with some of these church councils exactly. in the past and again that the ability to do that is greatly reduced now right and that has an impact on how theology develops in in the church through the dark ages right where would where would we be with augustine's writings if there wasn't pelagius mhm right sure yeah yeah exactly right so or even he himself right the development of thought that mhm 
intellectual combat sharpens, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and so you do see a little bit of these kind of um, this development of of versions of Christianity which um, take on the flavor of where they're at a bit. Because yeah, it becomes very regionalized. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we the you know the the papacy is still going to kind of persist and 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 eventually strengthen, um, you know, as we get into kind of the later Middle Ages uh, in particular. But there's still this kind of this this thing where I mean, so few people are going to be able to read the scriptures for themselves, mm-hmm. right? The the like the the religious practice is going to be done pretty well exclusively in Latin, um, which less and less people are going to be able to understand. Even even like wealthy noble people are are less likely to understand. And so there's there's just weird kind of practices that are going to emerge, um, kind of in different pockets throughout Europe that are going to. So when we think of all these weird things that happen in medieval Christianity. It's kind of for that reason. There's no one like outside of the the organized church itself, outside of like the these monastic communities. There's no one who's really able to say, "Hey, wait, why are we doing that? That's not in line with scripture because they don't they don't know scripture, right?" And and even inside of some of the monasteries, mm-hmm. the movement away from scripture mm-hmm. becomes a thing, yeah. right? And and under the church itself, under some of these popes. Mm-hmm. You end up with situations where you need priests in all of these different areas, but we don't have enough priests that are educated in theology and in the study of scriptures mm-hmm. to sufficiently fill those areas. And so whoever we can get <laughs> right. goes and, and and it becomes very much sort of... Uh, Superstition comes in a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of superstition that comes into the church. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of just sort of like hearsay. Yeah. Right? Like this traditionalism hearsay kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we get sprinklings of this in the modern church. Sure. Right? A pastor says something that's like a really interesting quip or a really good analogy. And it gets passed on and passed on and passed on. And after a while, you're like, I'm not even sure that that's true. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, I've heard so many people say, when you see the word love in the Bible, it could be one of three different kinds of love. Right. And agape is God's love for right. you, this perfect love that humans can never achieve. Right. I would say probably 98% of the time when you see the word love in your Bible, it's agape. Right. And when it's, <laughs> and when it's brotherly love... It says brotherly love. Right. <laughs> and the third kind of love, the love between a man and a woman, mm-hmm. is just absent from Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And and where that came from... C.S. Lewis. I, I think so. <laughs> uh, but, I've, but I've heard it. I, I've heard it for decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and I think there are probably people listening right now that are going, wait a minute. That's not true. <laughs> just rocks in people's world. But it just becomes a perpetuated thing. Yeah. And it and it has consequence in how people pursue love. Yeah. Right? They look mm-hmm. at it and they're like, well, if there it means agape, then I should just do my best and realize it'll never be enough. Right. Because that's what agape means. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and and along along with this kind of increasing superstition mixed with a, a lack of kind of universal education is again an increasingly um, authoritarian power structure within the church, right? Mm-hmm. And that from within the monasteries, right? Like the abbot rules with absolute power, right? Um, and I mean, maybe the monks will try to poison you, but usually they, usually they just listen, um, right? And same with bishops over, you know, over the congregations under their care and increasingly with the, the Pope, the, you know, the bishop of bishops. Um, so there's that element too, where it's like, well, if they're operating with that kind of level of authority, this, you know, this divinely given authority, then who are we to question what they say, even if it's contrary to what Scripture says? Yeah, and right? you can see where this would come, right? And on a couple of levels. One, if the entire congregation is illiterate, no one can challenge yeah. based on the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. The only thing I know about Scripture is what this guy tells me. Mm-hmm. And he tells me that God says that I need to listen to him without question and that I'm wrong about this situation. What do I know? Yeah. Seriously. I can't I can't disprove him. Yeah. And and then after that this whole thing is being done in a language that I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's there's the incense and the candles and these chants in a foreign language and all this kind of stuff. It must be very intimidating in a very mystical kind of a way, mm-hmm. especially when society has given itself from intellectualism to superstition, mm-hmm. right? And so all of a sudden, like, the idea that, you know, there are demons around every corner and then I have to do this to keep those things away and to please God and all that kind of stuff just sort of fits into their secular worldview as right. well. Right. And so it becomes this sort of basket weaving of a, of a place where a local religious leader mm-hmm. in the church has the capacity to take advantage of all that's around them. Yeah. And in just a couple of generations, come to believe that that's true because they themselves were brought up and are not learned. Yeah, and that's been their only known experience. Yeah, well, and even if, you know, if you ask, well, wh- why were you know why were concerns about these shifts in theology not brought up as as you know very much from within the church organization? You have to understand, like, for a monk or priest or abbot or whatever to question the status quo of their superiors was considered inherently sinful. Mm -hmm. Like just purely, you don't do that and would jeopardize your career, any chance of advancement, right? If you're the one giving the bishop a hard time um, and you get a reputation for that, that is, I mean, if if you don't lose your life over it, um, you're certainly not going to be well-loved from within, you know, the other the other levels of, of religious authority, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a way, the, the way the system is built is going to kind of uh, inhibit people calling out some of these things that that are cropping up and which just progressively get worse and worse and worse over hundreds and hundreds of years. So. Yeah, and, and I would say to that as well, a lot of these guys, I, I don't want to say most in, in a way to sort of like give any acknowledgement of a percentage, but a significant number, they're not concerned about theology. No. This is a this is a position of clout. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Inside of 
a society where those positions are only won by the sword. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of them are there because of favors to their families mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so they couldn't care less if it's not precisely in line with what the word of God says mm-hmm. as much as being precisely in line what their superior mm-hmm. the pope mm-hmm. might care about mm-hmm. so that they might get promoted from this hole in the wall podunk town to a larger town where they can live more comfortably right um so i think part of it is not just that they're uneducated they don't care to be educated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right they don't have that same sort of desire to say what does the word say they're like well yeah. i'm i memorized my things that i'm supposed to do for the various ceremonies and and that's we'll leave it at that yeah yeah because the church really becomes kind of the primary place for upward social mobility right like um, like maybe on the battlefield you can do that within reason mm-hmm. um but i mean it's through the church that yeah you can you can at least work your way up it's still full of you know nepotism and whatnot anyways but but there are opportunities there to you know improve your station in the world Um, mostly by fundraising (laughs) in time (laughs) yeah it's hard not to jump right into the reformation we got we got a ways to go yeah but fundraising is one way that people find upward mobility oh yeah uh by any means possible Mm -hmm. Um, yeah Yeah. so it all to say dark ages Mm -hmm. is a very reasonable term yeah yeah um, and as we're, as we've been talking about kind of the advancement of kind of the hierarchy of the church and the papacy, uh, we can talk about, there is a notable Pope in this, in this period of time, um, who, you know, for all intents and purposes had, had a lot of positives. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name was Gregory the Great. Well, they, he wasn't born Gregory the Great. His mom didn't call him that, but maybe she did. How audacious. Ma- maybe she did. And it just like boosted his self-confidence so much that he ended up... <laughs> <laughs> when people ask what they're supposed to call me, yeah. my go-to line is to say, my parents didn't have the foresight to name me pastor, so you can just call me Tim. <laughs> what if what if his parents did have that foresight? Mm. And they were like, you are Gregory the Great. Yeah. He did have like a great- Now just great, grow into your name. Yeah. He had a, like a great, great grandfather who had been a, a, a pope previously or something. But yeah, he had a prominent background, political, religious career, becomes pope in 590. Um, he's known for, for doing a lot of things. So he revised and standardized a lot of the liturgy, mm-hmm. um, that would persist for a long time. Have you ever heard of a Gregorian chant? Right. Started with him. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're, we're going back to the, the late five hundreds here. That's some history. Um, he did some good things. I mean, some major missionary ventures. Um, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, were, were kind of one of the last peoples in Western Europe to, um, not embrace Christianity. And so, as we mentioned last week, when the Irish were kind of sending missionaries over into Scotland and the north of England, he was sending missionaries uh, from the south. Um, there was a, a prominent guy named Augustine, not the same, different Augustine, Augustine of Canterbury. Uh, but yeah, brought brought Christianity to the Anglo-Saxons in England and then the Netherlands and Germany. Um, did a lot of charitable works. There's a cool, there's kind of a cool thing that happened. Well, it came out of something that's not so good. So, so people were already at this time donating um, significant tracts of land to the church as a way to probably to 
cover for their sins. I don't know mm-hmm. if at this point it's like in, indulgences has fully developed, but people are doing this thing. And so when famines hit, um, Gregory uh, used this land to grow crops and then organized a system of deacons to deliver the food to the starving masses. Um, so he, you know, he and 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 he wouldn't eat every day. He would wait to eat until the food had been distributed to the poor people in Rome. Um, so I mean, there is a, you know, they're not all, they're not all bad guys. <laughs> At this point, we could we could cut maybe some some of these guys a little bit of slack. Um, yeah, the the again. The, there's always the potential to use that level of power and authority uh, for good um, with good intentions. Um, like some have before Gregory, but the reality is is that um, that's going to become less and less common as time moves on as we start talking about more of uh, more of these popes and uh, what they what they choose to do with the power that they have. Sorry, I'm googling like crazy over here. Mm. Be thou my vision, okay? Ancient. Yeah, ancient hymn. Yeah, does it go back to this period? Oh, it might. Isn't it? Isn't I think it it's late? Irish though. I think it has Irish roots. But okay. yeah, but yeah, I think I thought it right. was five hundreds. But oh, yeah, no, you could be right. You could be right. Um, now, Gregory the Great dies in six o four, and again, we're kind of on you know, moving into this dark age, the early medieval age, whatever you want to call it. Um, but shortly after his death in the early 600s, there's a new movement that begins to gain some momentum in the Arabian desert. Uh, under the direction of a man who claimed to be the successor of both Abraham and Jesus. Yes. We see the founding of a new religion by a man named Muhammad. And that religion's name is Islam. This is really important. Mm. I, I, I had some people stop me after church even this week to say that um, Islam, Islamic apologetics is a growing thing. Hmm. Um, sorry. Some would date the song's music back to 560. There you go. So we're talking, when you sing Be Thou My Vision, that hymn as worship music, the musicality of it, uh, goes back to this period. That's pretty cool. Uh, But anyway, that's going to play in perfectly here. Um, for For all of the argument that there were two sons of Abraham. Oh, right, yeah. And... One son was blessed, but which son was it? Hmm. You follow one, we follow the other, and we are actually following the one that was blessed, right? Hmm. That does not historically stand. No. A group of people who would call themselves the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael, did not exist until the year 600. Right. And that might even seem old because it's a small number, but just look at how much church history we've covered, Mm -hmm. which doesn't even get into the Jewish roots of where Christianity began. Yeah, the 2,000 years or whatever. Right? This is profoundly late. Mm -hmm. 
to be coming on the scene. And the reason I say that the Be Thou My Vision really works in, we have songs that we still sing that are older than <laughs> Islam itself, <laughs> older than Muhammad. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the way that Muhammad pitched it was sure. newer is better, right? In the same way that the Mormons do the same thing, right? Like, well, the Bible's great, but we got this newer thing, right? The Book of Mormon, and that is it, newer is better. This is the revised and updated edition mm -hmm. because you guys, you guys misinterpreted uh, Jesus just like the Jews misinterpreted, you know, Abraham and Moses. That that's going to be the direction yep. that 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 Muhammad takes. Um, you know, according to him, he received a number of divine messages from the angel Gabriel, which he put together to make the Quran, um, which is almost exactly what Joseph Smith will say. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Except no golden plates this time. Uh, but yeah, so that's essentially it, right? He goes away by himself. He gets this direct revelation. He puts this thing together and he tries to convince people to follow it. Mm -hmm. Um, and initially he's met with some resistance, but he convinces some people to follow him. And then this thing is going to explode. Yeah, and and part of the reason it explodes is because it gives an identity to the people. Right? Yeah. We have we have this identity. Mm -hmm. And part of it too is that it is it has within it a call for conquest. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The expansion, the rise of our people. Mm -hmm. comes from this um and it's conquest by force yeah yeah over the next hundred years or so um it will develop into an empire that's known as the caliphate mm -hmm. and the the caliphate you know by the late 600s is going to be covering a larger territory than the roman empire at its biggest point right in in like a hundred years it's massive um it, we're talking stretching from India to Spain, mm -hmm. um, and and it's going to come into contact with uh, the Christian West in significant ways, um, significant ways long before the Crusades as well. Yeah, I wanted to compare this to the Crusades a little bit because I think what people are going to say is, well, whatever you're accusing them of, you did the same thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So so we say that the the conquering of the western port of, part of what was Rome up to us, they ran into some serious struggle there, and it sort of comes yeah. down into northern Africa mm -hmm. and up through Spain yep. and is stopped in France over time. Um, all of that done in the name of Islam mm -hmm. because the prophet says that God declares. Mm -hmm. Now, people are going to say, that is exactly what you do to them in the Crusades, dear Christian to which I would say this, those people who set out in military quests for the Crusades to conquer the lands for in the name of God had nearly 500 years plus of lousy Christian education mm -hmm. and were not reading the Bible because they couldn't. Mm -hmm. They were probably the most biblically illiterate generations mm. in Christian history. Sure. Right? We talk about biblical illiteracy and the problem that it is in the church today. Mm -hmm. It is nothing like it was then. Oh, yeah. The, the lack of education and understanding of Scripture and the will of God, very, very poor. Mm -hmm. 
So in the darkest ages of Christianity, these things were done. Mm-hmm. Whereas the prophet himself, mm-hmm. who brought the Quran, called for these charges yeah. in the name. So there's a big difference. Yeah. One group is saying our religion requires this conquest. The other group is saying we're going to do it in the name of God because one, it'll encourage, it, it benefits us. It sure. encourages people to join us. Uh, and to be afraid of not joining us, mm-hmm. right? It gives us reason and purpose for it. Sure. Um, so one one group compels it, and the other group just uses it because it benefits them. Mm. One group is come; it's coming from the source, and another group is coming from parties as detached from the source as historically mm. we have ever seen. Yeah, and I think the reality too is that um, you know, for us, we can look at some of the things that happened during the Crusades and say, well, that is not a part of what we're all about. Mm -mm. You don't have that luxury as a Muslim person saying that the expansion of the caliphate is not a core part of the faith because it is literally the foundational way in which Islam was spread. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and I think we underestimate how many people in other parts of the world continue to believe that to be so. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and like, and yeah, we don't have to defend what uh, what Christian Crusaders did in the Middle Ages. No, they. W- I will say they were wrong. Yeah, but I will also, fr- from a theological standpoint, hundred percent wrong. From a historical standpoint, again, um, just remember that you know what they did was done after four or five hundred years of attacks against Christian nations by the Caliphate as well. This was this was. Um, a, a boxing match centuries old. Right. I, I not would, unprovoked. We don't need to get too deep into the No, crusades. no, we don't need to know. We'll we, get there we eventually. We've got time. But I, <laughs> but I would say this. Whether or not it was the right or wrong move for a society that had been under attack mm. is up to what you believe about warfare and who's to blame about sure, these attacks, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I don't even care getting into that. Mm-hmm. That it was wrong to do it in the name of God yeah. and by the commission of God to reclaim the lands that had been given to Israel, mm-hmm. 100% wrong. Oh, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, for sure. Just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's all I got for today. That's what I got, too. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. See you later. See you.